Welcome back to the Enneagram Journey. My guest today is Joe Owen. He's an Enneagram 8 who's an attorney in Richmond, Virginia. I've been teaching in Virginia for a while, gotten to know Joe. He's close to my age, softened some by life experience, and yet he's an eight all the way through, married to Lori, who's a one. They're a fine couple for us to learn from about life and experience and change by chance and intentional change. Hope you enjoy our conversation. And one more thing. April 10th is the release date for The Path Between Us. You can pre-order on Amazon or at Ivy Press. I'm so excited because we have a special deal. If you order five copies or more and email the receipt to pbu at lifeinthetrinityministry.com, we're going to have a drawing and you could win a 45-minute Skype conversation with me. And I would love it, and I think you would too. Welcome to the Enneagram Journey. My guest today is Joe Owen. I think we've known each other for three years, maybe? Three and a half, three or four. And um, you're um, what I hope for in terms of walking wisdom for young eights. So I don't want to limit the podcast to the second half of your life because I want people to be able to understand the whole journey. Sure. So you're an attorney and you live in Richmond with your lovely wife, Lori. How long have you all lived here? I grew up here. Okay, so you're a... Oh, always. The only time I was not here were the three years I was in Charlottesville for law school. Okay. I went to high school, signed a football scholarship at the University of Richmond and played four years of football there. So never left town. I went on campus, but I didn't leave town. Okay. And so you and Lori have been married how long? Be 41 years in July if we make it that far. <laughs> That's what she she always says that. That's what she if we make it till July, yeah. it'll be if you can behave, years. it'll be forty one years. Yeah, that, well, that, that, that's what she means. Yeah, and Lori's a one. Yes. Okay, talk about uh, your kids for a little bit. All right, uh, we have three sons. Elliot is thirty eight. He lives in Los Angeles. He's a screenwriter for DreamWorks. Won an Emmy a year ago for a project called All Hail King Julian. He's now executive producer and chief writer for doing the same treatment for Kung Fu Panda. Cool. And middle son, as you know, is Grayson, and he was killed in June 13, 1995, when he was 14. Our youngest son is Reed. Uh, he's just turned 35. He's a horticulturalist at uh, Universal Studios in, in Hollywood. Elliot had gone out there, he came to me one day, and he said, Dad, and he graduated about a year before from Florida State, and he said, Dad, I think I need to move to Los Angeles. What do you think? I said, Son, don't be 40 and say, I wish I'd tried. There you go. And he packed up his car, drove across country without a job or a place to stay, and he's been there ever since. And five or six years later, he said, I think I'm going to try L.A. for a while. He was working on golf courses. He was originally certified in turf management at Rutgers and then moved from golf courses to gardens out there and got a, he's almost got his degree in horticulture mm -hmm. and just loves plants. And I asked him one time, I said, son, what's the difference between working on a golf course and working in the gardens? He said, well, dad, 
on the golf course we're abusing plants for play oh. and at the at the gardens we take care of them as God intended there you go so that's good that's yeah. a good story yeah okay well I um for reasons that I'm not sure I understand and I'm not sure you understand them either but I think you feel the same way I felt an immediate connection to you the first time I met you and I don't know if that was because of, of a time when uh, the real me happened to show up and the real you showed up. And so it wasn't about personality. It was just about, I, this guy is the real deal. That's what I thought. And I knew when I found out that you were innate, without knowing much about it, that there had to be an event that softened you. And one of the things that I want the world to understand better is what happens that eights can't control but that they can do something with when trauma or tragedy enters into their lives. So I'm going to say a few things that I think are true. If they're not true, I want you to correct me, like, on the spot. All right. So the first thing I would say is that I think smart eights, male and female, learn just by being in the work world or by being in the world, that they got to take some of the edges off to make it when they're at work, that they're going to have to chill a little, but not too much. True. I also believe that after tragedy or trauma or great failure, eights have a big choice between just going with personality and just being bigger and louder and stronger and more and more, or they can allow that failure, that trauma, or that tragedy to color how they're going to continue to be in the world. And because control is central for AIDS, so AIDS don't like vulnerability, AIDS don't like uh, anything that is... uh, beyond their control. They don't have to be in control at the moment, but they have to be able to imagine themselves to be in control of that thing. Like, I would do this differently, and I would change that. What happens when something happens totally beyond your control that turns your world completely upside down? That you, What happened that you were able to choose the gentler path? That's a question that I think would be really hard to answer. You're right. There was nothing you could do about it. Mm-hmm. And you might, if you're comfortable, you might talk a little bit about Grayson and about losing Grayson. And if you're not, that's fine. So that people have context for what we're... Yeah, no, no. Uh, Grayson was their middle son. Is their middle son. He, uh, great kid. He and Meredith were close. Mm-hmm. They were kind of a little puppy love thing. And, uh, you know, so that's how the McBean family and the Owen family got close together with a shared loss. But he was the life of the party. Mm-hmm. He was, he was always looking for something to happen. He may well have been a seven mm-hmm. and a uh, good athlete. All my boys were good athletes. Mm-hmm. They all, Grayson probably had the greatest potential because he was going to be six, seven, with my build and probably been a 300-pound offensive lineman in college. Not that you had a plan or anything. No, but... (laughs) But, boy, that would have been fun, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah, and, and, you know, the other two had their chances to play in college, but they weren't as big, and they just... And so 
you know, and he was the most stubborn of the three. Mm-hmm. He was he was interesting like that. I mean, uh, one time I was exercising mild corporate punishment. Mild corporate punishment, okay. And he looked at me and said, Dad, that didn't hurt. Whoa. Oh, <laughs> so, what a silly thing to say. Exactly. It will next time. Ex- no, it will now. <laughs> okay, gotcha. So after he was killed, and there were a couple of things that um, stand out to me. I remember uh, the day of his funeral, I was listening to some music, and Lori was ironing her dress for the funeral, and I heard her start crying. And I went over to comfort her, and she said, you know, God just spoke to me. He said, do you remember last September when you were with the Coazos? Even then I was preparing you for this. Mm-hmm. And at that moment I knew we were going to be fine. Oh, interesting. Not that it was going to change, but that she was still able to hear God's voice mm-hmm. in the middle of that. And she was referring to a couple we had met whose son had been killed, and they had spoken at an FCA, my first trustees meeting. I was a trustee for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes mm-hmm. for 12 years, and Gary and Peggy Coazzo told their story, and it blew us away. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, and I and I believe that, and so when you think about how did I, mm-hmm. those insights that God had to be in charge mm-hmm. of this, or we weren't going to get through it. Okay. And so I think the other piece of that, um, the David, the our pastor when he preached his funeral said, uh, the question we should not should be asking here is not, why did this happen question should be how are we going to use this for God's glory okay and that's has stuck with me ever since and in the time since I, I spent a lot of time coaching all three boys mm-hmm. in three sports mm-hmm. since Grayson was killed I've had 12 former players even young when they were young mm-hmm. die mm-hmm. from car accidents from drug overdoses from suicides mm-hmm. so I've been to their funerals hugging their mamas and daddies. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know whether that That's answers. very helpful. So were you ever just uh, arrogant, hard, smart, we're going to do life my way, I know the answers guy? <laughs> yeah. I just wanted you to own it for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. In my early days of practice, mm-hmm. uh, as an attorney. As an attorney. Mm-hmm. That's, I only went full bore like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I went full bore with everybody like that. And my senior partner at the time would say, Joe, you can't treat this like you're a damn football coach again. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was his way of trying to coach me to be softer. My partner now, mm-hmm. who we've been together 25 years, Mary is still not completely trusting that I have totally changed or changed enough that she won't warn me, Joe. Go slow. Go, don't yeah. don't be football coach on them now. Right. right. So, yeah, that's... <laughs> okay, can you talk about the difference in your relationships then, in you in relationships then, and you in relationships now? 
I think now, and the one you should be asking this is Lori, <laughs> uh, more than me, but I think I give more grace now. Mm-hmm. Don't haven't gone fully on eight on that. I mean, you. I'll give you maybe three chances now where I'd given you one before. Okay. And if you're, if I don't find you trustworthy after mm-hmm. the third one, you're dead to me. Mm-hmm. And what did that look like before? I, you know, something would happen and we're done. We're done. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Lori's a one. Yes. What is hard for you and Lori relationship wise and what just is wonderful for you as an eight and a one? What's hard for an eight with a one is her drive for perfection. Yep. It's got to be perfect. Uh, She can't make a decision easily. She's got to look at everyone and then think that there might be something else. Uh, I learned this when we first got married. We went looking for furniture. And we went to the first place we went. We saw something that she liked, I liked. I said, let's go. Let's get it and go home. Eight hours later and (laughs) however many stores later, we went back to that and bought that first one. I'm going... Why? Yeah. We wasted a day on this. And so, you know, that's that's been kind of the, and we both learned to adjust to that. Yeah. If we're doing something like that now, I'll say, I'll do the research and I'll say, okay, you pick between A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. Whichever one, I don't care. Just let's do it. Okay. So that that's a good thing for people to hear, a, a one and an eight. What about uh, Lori's oneness? just drives you crazy and what do you think drives her crazy about your eightness other than the quick decision piece what has uh, the chaining drives me crazy All right, let me tell you about what that is so in ones twos and sixes chaining is we chain everything to everything one failure brings up every failure one hurt brings up every hurt so keep going okay so the best example of that is probably two, three times a year she gets on me about how badly I acted the night before we got married. Oh, wow. Yes. So that's still with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm going, please. It's been a while. Yeah. 41 can, years in July. Can't we just leave that alone? <laughs> no. <laughs> and so I, but no. Do you think any- it's about that? <clears throat> when that comes up these many years later, do you think it's about that? Or can you think, All right, this isn't about that, so I wonder what. You know, I need to start thinking of it that way because really what she's saying is, you've really hurt me again. Mm-hmm. And and usually in my eight oblivion, I'm going, what the hell? Mm-hmm. I don't even think about it. what What is it now? It's yeah. just, you're talking about that. Let's leave that alone. Mm-hmm. Let it go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you love that song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But and that's the other thing. When she'll get something, the the chaining I think drives me the craziest because she'll go this and this and this, mm-hmm. not just. But the best example is the the, the night before the wedding. There you and, go. And I've even heard that story. <laughs> At work as an attorney, in maybe all aspects of being an attorney, what relationships are the easiest for you, and what are the hardest? 
Not based on number, just based on people's roles in your life. The easiest, I think, are uh, working with uh, our staff. Eights, I believe, love a team, and they love a camaraderie, and they love building the team. And, uh, you know, and as a coach, you want to put the right person in the right position, and those kinds of things go well. And so, uh, How many ag- aggressive numbers do you think work on your staff? Another way I could ask that is that is there somebody on the team who is a little problematic? Like, is there a personality that's a little harder for you to deal with? There, there are some personalities that are a little harder. And without... Sure. Are they feeling types? Yeah. 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 It's really tedious for you to deal with oh, feeling types, yes. isn't it? Yeah. And I don't have the patience for that. The, uh, okay, talk prim- about that a little more. Why does that require patience? Because I think feelings are a waste of time. Wow. Okay, talk about that a little more. When when you're trying to get a job done and mm-hmm. do something, you know, as an eight, we're feeling repressed. Right. <clears throat> so it's think it through and do it. Plan it, do it. Plan it, do it. And So how are you... So I, I understand that in terms of you being feeling repressed. But what do you do to accommodate the feelings of the people you work with or your clients? Well, now, you, when you said, what's the biggest challenge? Yeah. That's where I have to work with the feelings of the clients. And uh, really, probably one of the things that's kind of helped is working in a recovery ministry. Okay, talk about that. You know, you. I spend a lot of time listening to stories and counseling sometimes, mm-hmm. particularly in domestic cases, because the feelings are just off the charts. So I know to be successful mm-hmm. and good at what I do, I have to give room mm-hmm. for the client's feelings and address those feelings in an appropriate way. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I can't do my job well. So it's. I think it's all tied to performance. At least in the early days. It may be in, in my second half of life mm-hmm. piece, it, it comes more readily and it's more intuitive. Does your relationship at home get to help with that, that work relationship you have or vice versa? So you've got two relationships that you, ha- that you are a part of. So does acknowledging their feelings help you at home or vice versa? Does that make sense? It makes sense. Your question makes sense, and I think it's a both-and answer. I think it's. Bo- I think it goes both ways. I think Lori has uh, been a huge help for me taking off the edges because she's such a sweet and loving person, and and so that's helped with dealing with clients. Sure. And. She works for the firm three days a week, and so... Oh, so she's watching you. Yeah, and so she will say, Joe, you were really hard on so-and-so. Uh-huh. You need to apologize. You need to be, you know, you need to be less hard. So, yeah. All right, so Mom says that ones are the fourth aggressive number. You're you're an eight. I'm a seven. Threes being the other aggressive number. My wife's a one. And I find her to be like the fourth emotional number. 
not aggressive number. Is lower emotion or feeling like ones aren't feeling dominant? If I had to guess, everyone that I met is like feeling dominant. If I didn't know the anagram, I would guess that. And so I'm curious if it's a perspective thing from an aggressive number seeing someone who I don't think is aggressive, who has the potential to be, but just day in, day out, not aggressive, versus that I, I see the feelings all the time. Do you see Lori as aggressive or more emotional or more feeling? Um, I think she's more feeling, but she can be aggressive in her feeling. And I think that's exactly right. I think it's the feeling first, though, and then the, the aggressive. aggressive with the feelings. The, the okay. feelings are up front, and then whatever aggressiveness is pushing that. I think that's exactly right. That's very interesting. One of the things uh, that, that have helped... One of the ways that the Enneagram has helped us so much, we, we had a not very good introductory teacher to it until you came along. We didn't learn squat, but enough to be dangerous. But we did learn this with the one as the aggressive anger number in the mm-hmm. anger triad. We would have a disagreement, and Gloria would go silent for three days. Mm-hmm. It was just always going to be that way. And I would try to draw it an eight, wants to get it over with, move on down the road, get it, get it done. She would hold that. And she would, when she would finally open up, she would say, I would say, what are you mad about? I'm not mad. I'm hurt. Mm -hmm. So I would get that. I'm not mad. I'm hurt until we got the Enneagram and she realized that a good Christian girl can be mad and own it. Yeah. And so that has helped us immensely. So she'll just tell me when she's pissed off at mm-hmm. me. I'm angry. I'm angry because you did this. Mm-hmm. That makes it a whole lot better for us. And that's when she's using her aggressiveness to take up for herself. She does it with me regularly. She doesn't do it with others as much. She's comfortable, more comfortable doing it with me than she would anybody else. So she'll usually come and vent with me, mm-hmm. but when it's me, she will get, she will let that come out, sure. that, that aggressiveness. And that's where you talk about when ones are mad, they're angry at about what, they're what they're angry, angry about. about. That's it, exactly. So generally, ones are, when she's mad at you, it's usually not about you. It's stuffed anger from somewhere else that ends up in a discussion about the night before you got married. Mm-hmm. Do you have a way of getting to what it was about? Yeah, we usually just end up, it, it takes us a while, Yeah, but we get there. And that, again, having the language and having the understanding mm-hmm. and her understanding that that if you put it on the table and we can talk about it, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm yeah. fine with it. Okay, I think that's one of the best things about AIDS. So I, I'd like for you to just give me a couple, two or three sentences about that because the, the real truth is, if you're straight up with an eight, it doesn't matter what you're saying. It can be mad, sad, angry. I like you. I don't like you. If it's straight, then eights are fine with that. Exactly. I had a situation with one of the employees a few days ago mm-hmm. where I asked a point blank question mm-hmm. and got the answer. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out the person was wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, the old me would have just got mm-hmm. on for being a liar. But I did listen to them, and, and they had they had forgotten something. It was a year ago, mm-hmm. and they'd forgotten, and it hadn't been done, and this, that, and the other. And I, and I said, 
you know, I don't care whether you made a mistake or whether you did it or not. Mm-hmm. Just don't lie to me about That's it. That's right. Just about be, anything. Anything. Mm-hmm. Anything. If you, I can deal, I'll handle the truth every time, but I won't ha- handle deception. And that's when I'm going to get angry and that's when I'm going to cut you. Does it feel like betrayal? Deception, does that feel like betrayal to you? I've never thought of it as betrayal. I don't think in those terms. I just think I believe a person's word is their bond. Mm -hmm. And if I tell you something, Mm -hmm. if if it doesn't happen, it's because I died trying. Okay. And... I just think that's an honor thing. Sure. I'm, I'm more into honor about that and that it's what... It's what we do. It, we, it's just what we do. Yeah. That, that Don't play games with me. What numbers um, are really hard for you? Probably twos. There's a lot of disconnect between twos and eights if and you consider it's, it's that they right share a line on the Enneagram. It is. I mean, it's just... You know what I think that's about? My theory is... That some places where people share lines on the Enneagram, they spend more time in that other number. When you go to two, you stay there for a few minutes. And when I go to eight, I stay there for a few minutes. And, you know, some numbers, when they make that move in stress or security to another number, they they stay there for a long time. Yeah. But two is too uncomfortable for you, and eight is too uncomfortable for me. And I think that's why. I mean, I think that whole thing of needing to be needed. Uh Uh-huh. Eights don't want any needy people around, no, no. and they don't want to. They they don't really feel the need to be needed. They're Why gonna, do you think neediness is threatening to eights? That's a good question. You're the boss. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I think. I because I, I, I don't know. I, I I just I just know you feel like you're suffocated if That's somebody right. is going off on how much they need this or need that or need the other, mm-hmm. and maybe it's because eights. Go to the thing about an eight is it's so important to be self reliant. Oh, so it's a respect issue then. Does it just feel like a pit? Does it just feel like a pit to you if you allow that kind of need? Is like if I if I get in that, there's no way out. They'll just need something else and something else. Is that what you think? No, I think it's just a pain in the ass to have somebody (laughs) that whiny and needy. Okay, that's very helpful. Very helpful. (laughs) I mean, mean, here's the thing. And again, you don't. Is it a respect issue? Could be. Like, get your stuff together. Is that kind of how you feel? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have any room for that. Enough. Let me go. Or respect back. yourself enough. There it is. Yeah, respect yourself enough that you don't do this. Let, let me give you a, a bit some background you may or may not have ever heard from me. Okay. My father was an alcoholic. Okay. I didn't see him sober from the time I was eight until probably when I got out of high school. And I developed in my mind as a young eight would, if I'm ever going to get anything out of life, I'm going to have to do it myself. It's all on me. And it's all on me to make it happen. You know, if I didn't get a scholarship out of college, I would have been in Vietnam. And those kinds of things. And so that whole idea of self-reliance, my idea, my theology in those days, and I was not, I did not have much of a faith walk was, the biggest sin you can commit is not doing your best okay. and not using the gifts God gave you to, to take care of yourself. So that it's, was in that young eight stage as a child mm-hmm. that I think that whole idea of needy 
became a part of it. So let's talk about recovery for a minute because I think there's a possibility that eights would say that they overcame uh, being the child of an adult alcoholic or the adult child of an alcoholic. You know what I'm saying? I, I think there's a place where some numbers would be, here's how it affected me. And I, I can imagine you saying, that's how you let it affect you, if you didn't know the Enneagram. How I looked at it before I knew the Enneagram yeah. was that growing up in that environment was, was both very hard, but in a lot of ways a blessing because it taught me to be self-reliant. It taught me I had to take care of myself. Now, the good thing in my life was uh, I was able to lose myself in sports. Mm-hmm. And that saved me. I had a, a coach that took me under his wing when I was an eighth grader. That mm-hmm. uh, so I, that was my father figure, mm-hmm. and my dad was very de- jealous of him. I mean, it was it was mm-hmm. a very interesting dynamic. And can you see how though, if you're not an eight, you wouldn't you wouldn't say that taught me to be self-reliant. You would, if you were another number, you might say, that taught me that you can't trust people to do what their role is supposed to be. Or that taught me that I can't trust myself because I didn't know what to do with the absence of a parental figure. Absolutely. I think, I, think, I think being an eight allowed me to survive and thrive Okay. in that setting. And so... Would you be able to say that your impatience in relationship with other people sometimes is because they don't survive and thrive? Yes. It, and does it feel like a choice? Yes. They're not choosing to survive and thrive. Is yes. that how that feels to it you? It does. It does. That, that is uh, complicated. Okay, what, what numbers are easiest for you to be in relationship with? Now that I know how hard it is for you to be in relationship with me. <laughs> and, and what a gift it is we can be in yes, such good relationship. So good, isn't it? Right. Okay, what numbers are easiest for you? Probably threes and sevens. You realize you just named feeling repressed people, right? Like you just named oh, your yeah. tribe. I yeah. did. I, 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 but, yeah. but, but, but that's who it is. <laughs> you asked me the question, and, and you know I'm an eight. I ain't like a, no. I'm not going to be asked you. No. So, but you know, our, our, our oldest son's a four. Yeah. Uh, his wife thinks she's a nine. We think she's a three, but that's yeah. whatever. And, that's, and our youngest son's a nine. And so, you know, it's been. It's a lot for you. Withdrawing numbers and uh, dependent number wife, and there you are carrying the torch for everybody. Well, as I tell, uh, as I told Elliot, I said, you know, most guys marry their mama. You mm-hmm. married your daddy. That's very interesting. It is. I mean, and he and Elliot and, and Lori temperamentally are very close, even mm-hmm. though he's a four. Sure. But uh, and they they do on the same line, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one to, and I can't yeah. remember which. So. For, Four goes to one in uh, one goes to four in stress. Four goes to one in security. Yeah, and so yeah, so it it um, but but both of them need the the aggressive number at times sure. in their lives, and so that's uh, I think that's why Lori and I figured out how to balance it. And Elliot and Tracy are the same way. They just 
figured it out. They're two pieces. I mean, they're just yeah. happy as pigs and slop. Okay, so if I said, what three things would you, what three pieces of advice would you give to young eights? N- n- no gender difference. What three pieces of advice would you give to young eights about relationships? First thing is, don't feel like you've got to win. Don't feel like you've got to win. That's golden. Okay. Learn to give them room to be them. Okay. And try to figure out what you do that regularly you do regularly that hurts them. Okay. Which one of those is hardest for you? Um, figuring out what I do regularly that hurts them. If I've done something to hurt somebody uh-huh. and I realize it, I, I, I try to apologize or sure. make it right. And then it's over. You know how forward thinking eights are. Mm-hmm. I just look forward. I can't change that. Once mm-hmm. I've done my piece of that, I can't change that. So rarely do I spend a lot of time, even trying to do mindfulness and, and mm-hmm. meditation, thinking about the past. That's interesting. Are, are You guys are both aggressive numbers, so your orientation is the future. Is it tedious to deal with people who are in the past or who are kind of trapped in the present moment? Like, do you guys kind of feel like you're waiting for us to catch up? Yes. <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> Why, yes, that's exactly how we feel. Particularly the ones that are stuck in the past. I'm going, okay, you can't do anything about yeah. that. You yeah. can't do anything about it. I'm a little more patient with folks in the present, trying to deal with the present situation. Mm-hmm. But the past, that's history. Uh, if you Now, unless you need to learn from that, that. past, mm-hmm. and I, I get really frustrated for people making the same mistake over and over and over again, mm-hmm. you know, and then it's that insanity of Einstein, each time thinking yeah. they're going to get a different same result. Same old thing, yeah. So the two of you work in um, recovery communities. Do you find that people in recovery have a tendency to focus more on the past? And do you think aggressive numbers in recovery focus more on the past than aggressive numbers that are not in recovery? You know, that's a good question. I've not ever sat down and thought about it that way. That's that's an interesting way to look at that. I think uh, a big piece of it could be where people are at health-wise. You know, when you're at as far as recovery goes, a meeting and people just, there are certain people that love to tell just stories of failure. How they, yeah, of the failure and they, and they love it. Or then they love to tell how they, the other side of it, it's in the past, but how they got there. But that's not, meetings don't seem to be very future oriented because it is, I guess, you know, certain places are actually called one day at a time. So it's mm-hmm. supposed to be in the now. And maybe that's why meetings are so hard for me. Is because mm-hmm. I'm where where are we going? Mm-hmm. Like I do know what happened in the past. I do know what we did to change it. You know that's verbiage from from the book. But mm-hmm. now it's where are we going, and just staying on that path. I would think both recovery and as a lawyer that that would be that those would have be parallel difficulties. Yeah. Of just matter of fact, this is the past. This is what has gotten you in this situation, and now that that now the past 
staying in that and focusing on that is an obstacle towards your objective, whether it's in law and in your situation or in sobriety. Staying past oriented isn't going to uh, solve the solve the problem. Is yeah. that right? And exactly. That works with both, and so that's why it's, as an eight, it's 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 true in both. Mm-hmm. That's so rational. Y'all are looking at me like, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <In your laughs> yes, point. it is. And <laughs> what's your point? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's so interesting to me to hear <coughs> the two of you be so confident. And you're talking about uh, doing and thinking and thinking and doing. And I'm here aware that I, I at least get that. But I wonder if it's harder for aggressive numbers. And this is a question I don't have the answer to. Like, I'm wondering if it's harder for aggressive numbers to bring up feeling than it's hard for any of the other six numbers to bring up their repressed center. Like, is feeling the hardest center of intelligence to bring up? I would have said before June 13, 1995, absolutely. Okay. But when you bury a baby, mm-hmm. feelings reach up and bite you when you're, when you're not really thinking about it. I mean... Okay, now I want you to give eights a real gift right here because based on what I know of you and what you've said in our time together today. You couldn't not deal with those feelings. So you allowed them and you dealt with them, but you didn't get stuck in them. And I think what aggressive numbers are afraid of is if even in unexpected tragedy or trauma, they allow feelings that there won't be any way out of them. Is that true? Was that true for you before then? Is that true for you? I don't know that I ever thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. It just, to me, feelings were a waste of time. They were just useless. Wasn't what any point in them. And, and does it seem to you, too, like we could control them better if we just would? Yes. So it seems to me like you could have more feelings if you just would. What makes you feel vulnerable in relationships? And how do you think you make other people feel vulnerable? And I'm not talking about Lori, and I'm not talking about your family. I'm saying when you're out in the world, does anything make you feel vulnerable when you're relating to other people? Only if it's people that I've developed a relationship with and I care about. Okay. And do you think out in the world, when you're relating to other people you make them feel vulnerable? And if so, how do you think that happens? When you say make them feel vulnerable, mm-hmm. how do you mean? Like, Well, some eights come on pretty strong when they're in a restaurant or checking out at a group. You know what I'm saying? Eights come on pretty strong. Do you still do that? And no. do you think you age out of that? I don't know whether you age out of that mm-hmm. or you trauma out of that. I think you age out of it. Potentially, if you let life affect you. If you do, and if you do your work, and mm-hmm. if you if you if you embrace when you go to two, yeah, and Karen, I'll give you an example. I'm a big tipper because I want the people because I want to help them. There you go. That's the tenderness in eights that people don't see, and that's what I'm going to wrap up with because I have to wrap up, and because 
I think eights are so much, have on board, so much tenderness that nobody ever sees. That's just in moments, little moments. Well, I got a tender heart for you. Uh, I'm glad I know you. Thank you so much for this time. It'll be helpful. Mine too. Thanks. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solve Lighthow. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit theenneagramjourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.